I'm really, really thankful that uh, the singing comes before the bringing of the word in this church because no matter how much I prepare, and I spent basically all December going through the book of Philippians over and over again preparing, but I still, every Sunday morning that I've been up here in the past four years, and I, I get to do this maybe once or twice or three times, sometimes four times a year, but every single time I get up here, I am incredibly thankful that I'm reminded of the truths before any word comes out my mouth. Those, those songs that uh, Jonathan and the others prepare for us um, are just chocked full of the gospel. They're chocked full of who we are in Christ, what we just sang so much. We have to sing it over and over again because we forget so easily. So thank you, Jonathan, for all the work that you do. And I'm also thankful for this. I'm going to have to step back a few times to look at Haas Lomas and Josh Randolph over there, but we'll, we'll, we'll work it out. Open your Bibles, if you would, to um, Philippians chapter 2. And because I don't really, you know, I don't have the opportunity to, uh, to do long series where I can give a lot of context, what I like to do when I am up here is um, just take a book and take a passage within that book and then kind of show how the themes run through the book as a whole. So we're going to be looking at a lot of Philippians today. That's going to be our, our focus, but the, the central part is Philippians chapter 2. And I'm going to start reading actually in um, verse 5. You know, on your outline, if you have one, it says 12 through 18, but I'm going to start in verse 5 and um, read through verse 11 first. So Philippians 2, 5 through 11, this is not the Bible that I'm I usually use, so it'll take me a while to get there. Here we go. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says this. Um, Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being found in likeness, sorry, in the likeness of, um, of men, Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." This passage tells us in glorious terms of the incarnation and the work of Christ. He abandoned his state of eternal preexistence with the Father to come to be with us here on earth. He made himself a servant. Now we as Christians have hopefully spent the last month celebrating that fact, celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ has come into the world. And we look over the course of Advent in anticipation for Christ's coming to Bethlehem. Now, there's, there's nothing really in the Bible that says that December is the month to think about this. Um, the, only, the only day that's set apart in the New Testament is the Lord's Day, first day of the week, which is why we're all here, by the way. Um, Christmas isn't really there. But for the past 1,700 years, the church has used this time of year kind of generally with some tweaks and um, uh, you know, modifications, generally the month of December or January, to celebrate the idea that Christ has come into the world. 
um, at, at least 1,700 years. So here we are. Christmas is over now. And some of you may be celebrating the 12 days of Christmas coming up, but for most of us, Christmas is over, and the long dark of January is staring us in the face. And the question is, what now? Um, this is a time of people when, I'm sorry, this is a time of year when so many people get depressed. They get anxious, and certainly this year, there's plenty of things to be anxious about. Um, this year's already famous um, for all of the things uh, that have gone wrong, or that have caused anxiety, or that have caused depression. Even if we have celebrated rightly, even if we have focused our hearts and our minds on Christ, and is coming into the world, that still leaves us with a question of where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Well, in the Gospels, after telling of Christ coming into the world, the flow of the narrative um, in those stories moves in two directions at once. The, the Gospels tell of two things. They tell of evil that remains still in the world. Um, particularly the evil that John the Baptist calls out and the, the evil of Herod as he slaughters the innocents. Evil is still here after the coming of Christ into the world. Um, there is a not yet to our experience. We are not yet in heaven. Um, but it also moves towards discipleship. That's the other main theme that comes right after, um, in most of the Gospels, the four Gospels, that comes right after Christ coming onto the scene and his baptism, and then he calls disciples. He calls disciples to himself. And so the question of what should we focus on after reveling in the glorious truth of the incarnation, I think has the same answer. I think the Holy Spirit would have us recognize that the evil is still here. The pain is still here. Even with Christ in the world, there is pain. But also that Christ has called us to follow him in the midst of that as his kingdom comes into this world. So let's start reading again um, the passage that we will be focusing on primarily this morning. That's Philippians chapter 2 still, and I'll be reading from verses 12 through 18. So then, my beloved, just, or so that there it is, that therefore, the so then, this is what happens now. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that it, it speaks of itself, that it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. I pray, Lord, um, that you would transform our hearts and minds through your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So the answer to the question of what now, then, is discipleship. It's following Christ. Or as this passage puts it, shining as light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. 
In this particular letter to this particular congregation, Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit to take on a tone of gentleness. Um, there's just this overwhelming affection that runs throughout, um, throughout the, the book of Philippians. It's not like that in all of his letters, but he knows, as any good leader knows, or as any good parent will know, that sometimes there's a, there's a time for rebuke and there's a time for chastisement, and sometimes there's a time for encouragement and for gentle admonishment. And that's what Philippians is all about. Um, Paul, Paul wants to build them up a little bit because he knows that, uh, that they're going to be in a tough spot, and perhaps they already are in a tough spot. Um, it, it has kind of a tone of, of keep up the good work in it. The Philippians have been doing well. They really have since Paul planted their church. They've been, um, they've been doing well, particularly in their financial giving. They've supported Paul. They know that that's how God would have his church move forward and proclamation of the gospel move forward. But the letter also indicates that Paul is a little worried about the Philippians. He's worried that their faith is overly dependent on him, on his presence, on his personality, on his preaching. He's worried that the Philippians have not yet matured to the point where they can inter- <clears throat> sorry, encourage each other in the discipleship of Christ, in following after Christ. And this is the only epistle in the Bible, I think, um, and someone correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this is the only epistle in the Bible addressed specifically to the elders and the deacons in chapter 1, verse 1. I think Paul wants to give this group, um, he wants to give their leaders credibility in their eyes because they've been, they've been forming their faith around him personally, it seems. And now they need to be encouraged by their own leaders. They need to be guided by their own leaders and by each other as a congregation. Paul knows, because he knows his Bible way back in Exodus, that, um, that when Moses delayed from coming down from the mountain, the children of Israel turned quickly again to idolatry. They turned quickly again to their sins. And he's worried that if he delays, because he's in prison now in Rome, that, um, that, they're going to, that their faith is going to fizzle, just like their spiritual ancestors did in the wilderness. Um, and we see that all around us in the world, don't we? When a leader of the church moves on or when a leader of the church passes away, the, the spiritual fervor of the people of God starts to fizzle a little bit. How many missionary movements of the 19th and 20th centuries fizzled out when those missionaries departed and went back to their home countries. Or, you know, the whole book of Judges is about the spiritual fervor of the people of Israel fizzling when each judge passes away. Paul is concerned about this. We as parents have seen, um, have seen teenagers, you know, when they leave their home and go off to college, they're no longer in the presence of of their parents spoon-feeding them the gospel, their faith, their fervor, their spirituality kind of fizzles a little bit sometimes um, because it was reliant on their parents. And Paul is concerned about this. So he says, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. Continue on. There was a church in St. Louis where I lived for four years um, that admired their, their founding pastor perhaps a little bit too much. Um, and when he died, 
They had a very, very difficult time continuing on in ministry. The church did. They were so distraught that they, they had this oversized portrait of him made. It was like life-size portrait. And they hung it in the narthex in a very, very prominent part of the church so that when you walked into the main um, entrance of the church, it was right there. You know, their, their former pastor was kind of staring down at you. And they, their, spiritually, their spirituality was wrapped up in him and his image, as it turned out, um, for the congregation. And I was told that um, after a while that, church, that, uh, that portrait had hung there, there was a, a leak in the, uh, in the sprinkler system right above it. And so one night, all of this rust water poured down from the sprinkler system and completely destroyed the painting. It, the person who told me said that it was, it was clearly an act of God because the, the water was aimed almost directly at the portrait. And the, the people of that church, the guy said it was, who was talking to me about this, he said it was a really good thing because the people of that church were saved from their idolatry by a leaky sprinkler, sprinkler system. Um, the, the picture had to be removed, and eventually the church recovered, and they went on in ministry. And it's a, it's a thriving church now. The fellow who was telling me this is actually, I believe he's still the pastor there. Um, he's kind of filled in that place. But they were forced to move on in encouraging each other in the Lord and in lifting up each other in discipleship. Now, hopefully, Lord willing, all of our pastors are going to be here for a long, long time to come. Um, Joel is, is moving on. He's, he's the only one that I know of, though. Everyone else... I think is committed to be here, and um, we, we will certainly miss Joel. But that's not the point. The point is when any of us start to rely on any author or, or prominent um, personality, spiritual personality, or any pastor, for our own spirituality, there's a danger there, just like there is a danger for the Philippians, because that is the job of Christ, to be our, our salvation. And the answer that Paul gives here is, is really very simple. And the wording is a bit shocking. It says this, Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Now Paul is obviously not saying here that um, the Philippians are to accomplish their own salvation. It says elsewhere in Philippians and elsewhere in, in the Word that only Christ accomplishes salvation. Rather, the scripture states here and elsewhere that salvation is a thing to be lived out in the hard work of discipleship. Salvation is not a passive state of being that relies on the spirituality of others. God saves his people from that kind of lethargy, that kind of passivity. He saves them into a life in which they, like Paul, press on toward the goal for the upward prize. I'm sorry, I'm bungling that. Press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's from chapter 3, verse 14. And in this we have confidence. As we press on, we have confidence to know that it is God who works for us. Flip over to Philippians chapter 1 and read verse uh, 6. It says this in Philippians 1, Six, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. 
He knows that it is ultimately God who accomplishes ultimate salvation. God has started the process, and God will see it through. And this is a tremendous motivation to us because it's true. If, God, if because God's at work, I am headed toward a life of holy work, and if that life really is going to be a joyful and a good life, then let's dive right in. Let's get this started. Let's continue in the grace of God. One of the other things that Paul seems to be a bit worried about on behalf of the Philippians is their unity. And this is a theme that pops up again, over and over again throughout the letter. Um, it says several times that they all worked side by side when he was present. They were all partnering with him when he was present. But they're having a hard time agreeing now that he has been gone for a while. They must do all things without grumbling or disputing, as it says in our passage. After having heard the gospel, after having heard that Christ had come into the world to save them and give them righteousness, they are in danger of falling back into the pattern of this world, specifically the pattern of grumbling and disputing. And that is clearly the pattern of the world, isn't it? We see it all around us, all around us. You see political parties who have a hard time even communicating what it is that they want or what it is that their, vision, their platform or their vision because they're just caught up in grumbling and disputing. All they, they seem to be able to say, and we've all seen this, I'm not saying anything new, all they seem to be able to say is what's wrong with the other position, what's wrong with the other platform. Um, all they seem to be able to do is complain about thing, the way things are or the way things were or the way things would be. Any, any part of the political spectrum, you can pick, pick people who do this. And it's, it's, it's in our ordinary people's lives as well. It's in my life to just to not know really what the answer is, and so to fall back on, well, at least what I'm doing is not as bad as what that guy's doing, you know? At least I'm, I'm better off, or, you know, let's focus on how wrong that position is. It's a grumbling and a disputing, and, and this was true way back in Paul's day. It's true today. Um, and it will probably be true until the Lord comes again, but it's something that has to be addressed. It's something that has to be fought against. You know, we're, God sets up structures for us. He sets up leadership in his church and in the state for us to follow so that as long as we continue to do what's good, um, we can submit to our authorities and we can go on about our lives in godliness and holiness, as it says. That's in Hebrews 13. Uh, 17 and Romans 13. I'm kind of having to cut some things out on the fly here, so if I see a little disjointed in this middle part, forgive me. Um, I'm, I've prepared, I think, a little bit too much. But um, So what does it mean here when it says do all things? What are the all things that Paul is writing about? Well, the Holy Spirit directed Paul to structure the, the letter to the Philippians with a kind of flow to it. And he takes several different themes and weaves them together to show a pattern of the whole Christian life. And one of the themes is the theme of co-labor, working together. The church at Philippi and our church and every church throughout history has had a deep need for unity. It is imperative that we turn toward each other first, to be united toward each other, to find agreement and unity in Christ, 
And then we need to go on, and as they needed to go on, to get off their collective duff and start doing the hard work of the gospel. One of the fundamental ideas, and David Roundtree actually mentioned it this morning, that drove the vision of this church, of New Covenant, in the early days, was the idea of the member minister. I think he called me a member minister earlier, just a little while ago. Now, I wasn't here when that, that phrase came about, so you can ask some of the people who have been here longer than I um, what passage they were specifically looking at when they adopted that phrase. I'm sure it comes straight from the Bible somewhere, but the idea of it, though not perhaps those exact words, the idea of it runs right through the book of Philippians, all the way through it, over and over again. There's the idea of unity, of membership, of coming together, of being united, and then there's the idea of ministering, of work, of discipleship, and of serving one another. From the very first verse, Paul and Timothy call themselves bondservants of Jesus Christ, all the way to the end, where, um, where a couple of the members of the church are called out that they need to be united in their work, that they need to come together to work for the gospel. So let's flip back over to chapter 2 and read verse 1 through 4 of chapter 2 there, because this spells it out pretty plainly. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if there is any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own interests or for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then it goes into what I read at first about what, how Christ did that. The action starts with unity. It starts with being of one mind, the, the co-part of co-laboring, of membership. As we in humility count others more significant than ourselves, then it moves into service, to ministry, to labor, the labor part of co-labor. And the gospel always does that. It always moves from the transformation of the individual into good words and deeds in the community and in the world. It pushes us in that direction. So everything I've said so far has been um, kind of abstract. There's not a whole lot concrete in that. It's a, it's, it's a well-structured ideas, well-structured themes. Um, but we as humans are weak, and understanding doctrine sometimes just isn't enough for us. We need concrete examples as the Holy Spirit transforms us. And this is especially true for the young believers at Philippi, but it is also true for those of us who have been Christians for a long time and who need our, our faith to be refreshed. We need a concrete pattern to follow. We actually have lots of concrete patterns throughout Scripture, throughout the history of God's people, if we look for them. And God has given us the story of his saints who have gone before and left a legacy to follow. Hebrews 11 traces the story of redemption through the people who lived by faith, these were flawed individuals whom God used to transform the world. The Holy Spirit took these people and created a new pattern 
of faithful living. Paul urges the Philippians several times throughout the, the book of Philippians, or the, the letter to the Philippians, to imitate him in his rejoicing and in his service, in his pattern of life. As one of the reasons why it is so important to hold fast to the word of life, this book contains examples and it contains commands and it contains ideas of how to live. There's, it doesn't leave that up to guessing. It doesn't leave that up to, to chance or choice. And of course, the greatest example is the example we have been celebrating all this Christmas. It's the example of the coming into the world of Jesus Christ. He gave up his spot as the recognized equal of God to become a dishonored servant. You know, it's one thing for a president or some kind of corporate executive to roll up his sleeves and do some work of charity because he still gets the recognition. He still gets the, the honor. But it's another thing for Christ to have abandoned that recognition and to have placed himself below the people that he was serving. He showed us not only how to condescend and serve those who are socially or in some other way beneath us, but also how to serve when we are despised and rejected as ones beneath those we are serving. That's where the rubber meets the road, where you serve when your service is not appreciated by anyone, but is only recognized by God. Christ did this in innumerable practical ways, and time would fail me if I listed them all out, but just to name a few, he healed the sick, he nourished the hungry, he provided lots of good wine for wedding partiers, he spoke the hard truth of the words of life, and he spoke comfort and encouragement. Some of us are good at some of these things, and I know I stink at some of these things, but that's one reason why I have four full books of the Bible and the Gospels to show how Christ lived, to show what his heart is, to show what kinds of things he loved so that I can follow those things. I can have the mind of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit and imitate the Word made flesh. In conclusion, none of this labor, none of this work, none of this unity means anything if this is all there's ever going to be. If the story ends, then why should we struggle for the truth? Paul writes elsewhere, if the dead be not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. There's another theme, however, woven through this particular letter to the Philippians. And it is a message that is still incredibly important for us here today. So let's read one more time. Philippians chapter 2, 16 through 18. It says this, Holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you, too, with you all. You too, I urge you, rejoice in the same way, and share your joy with me. We have the opportunity to rejoice together in all our strivings and in all our labor because the day of Christ is coming.
We can pour it all out. We can pour out our money. We can pour out our time. We can pour out our effort. And we don't even have to take the time to pay ourselves back because we know we are going to be rewarded by Christ in the day of Christ. He will reward us. And Paul sets a kind of a a partial example of this by rejoicing even while he's in prison and by urging the Philippians to, to do likewise with him. And of course, the ultimate example once again is Christ. He rejoiced, it says in Luke 10, as his kingdom was coming and as, as the demons were being driven out and God's word was, was revealed to, to little children. Um, he says, you have not revealed this to the wise, but to little children. We saw an example of, of the importance of them in the kingdom before us this morning. All through the epistle to the Philippians, the day of Christ and the resurrection of the people of God from the dead serves as a kind of foundation. It undergirds everything else. It gives it all meaning and hope. This rejoicing is especially difficult, and it's especially important right now in 2020. You know, as the afterglow of the Christmas celebration begins to fade, and the long dark of January is in front of us in, in February, and as we realize that all of the evils that made things hard this year for so many of us, all of those, those hardships are all still there. The time to rejoice is now. To rejoice in the hope of the coming of the day of Christ. It's a matter of life and death. My Uncle Jim uh, passed away a few weeks ago. And my dad's brother-in-law... He'd gone through coronavirus and had begun to recover from the effects before he finally went on to be with the Lord. He was 89 years old. And for a long time, when he was middle-aged and when he was a little bit older, he, um, he drifted away from the church, perhaps drifted away from the faith. He was a construction worker in South Florida, and he had kind of a tough guy sort of image. But in recent years, he and his wife, Alita, my aunt, had come back to the church. They had come back to Christ um, in his 80s, and their faith was revived. My dad had the opportunity to, uh, to be with him at a, at a church service where he was worshiping. It was kind of an old country Baptist church, and he said the transformation in my Uncle Jim was incredible. It was really amazing. Like, he would, you know, as soon as it was time to give testimony, and you know, you know how some churches give testimony, but he would jump up there and he would give a powerful testimony. He was rejoicing. He would rejoice in the songs that were sung. He would sing loudly with gusto. All of these songs. It was completely unlike the Uncle Jim that I, that I used to know. He had come back to Christ. He had come back to the people of God in the context of rejoicing. And I think that's why it was so hard for him when he was put in quarantine as a, as a COVID patient in the hospital. You know, not even his wife or daughters were allowed to come see him. He could not rejoice together with the people of God. And ultimately, he lost the will to live. He has to be taken off of life support. Now, I have no idea, I'm sorry, I have no doubt that he is rejoicing now before the throne of God with his saints, with God's saints in heaven. And I have no idea how long he would have lived um, if he had been allowed that kind of fellowship. But his life shows how utterly important 
rejoicing with God's people is as we work together in the grace of God, according to the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you um, that you're here with us. I thank you that you give us, in the midst of trials and hardship and hard work, I thank you that you give us so many causes to rejoice and to rest in your salvation. I pray that you would give us hearts that are filled with joy as we sing these songs, as we continue to worship, um, as we continue to remember that you are here with us, that your son was incarnate, and that he has promised his promised helper has come. I pray, Lord, that you would transform our hearts and lives as we go from this place. Be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.